text for our sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter 13, and we will read verses 18 through the end of the chapter, 18 through 25. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. This time I'll call our kids to the front for their children's sermon. Well, the verses that we read this morning are the last words of the letter written by Paul. Paul was a special messenger of Jesus. He's what we call an apostle. An apostle is someone who was specially chosen by Jesus and sent to preach about him. When Paul, or the other apostles of Jesus, went to a city, he preached to the people about Jesus, and he started new churches there. And after Paul left to go to a new city, he would often write letters to the places he had been before. Now, God gave Paul the words to write, and that's why God included these letters in the Bible. Even though these letters were written to the church in a certain city, they're really written for all of God's children, even us here in Tripp, South Dakota. When you write a letter to somebody, you usually end the letter with maybe some special instructions and goodbye. Like if you wrote a letter to your grandpa, you might end it by asking him if he's seen your jacket because you can't find it and you think you might have left it at his house. And you might ask him to give grandma a hug and a kiss for you. That's what you would do in a normal letter. But this Bible letter called Hebrews is not a normal letter. It's the word of God. God used the Apostle Paul to write it, but the words that he wrote all came from God. So, when we see in our verses today that this letter ends with special instructions and goodbyes, we have to think about why God would give these words to Paul. We read in our verses that the Christians in Italy say hi. We also read that Paul asks for prayer, that God will let him come visit them soon. He also tells them that Timothy who was Paul's friend, had just got out of jail. Timothy had been put in jail because he was a Christian. Paul got put in jail a few times too. Imagine if it was against the law to worship God. What would you do? Paul and Timothy worshipped anyway, and they preached about Jesus even though it meant that they would be put in jail. So we read that Paul wants to visit the Hebrews soon, and he plans to come with them with Timothy if Timothy can get there in time. Again, we have to remember that this is not a normal letter written by Paul to some friends. It's the word of God. And God gave these words to Paul to write. And that means that these words have a lesson to teach us. So let's think about those things for a few minutes this morning. When Paul asks for prayer, we learn that it's important for us to pray. And it is also important for us to pray for the men that God has called to preach his word to us. We also learn that we should remember and pray for our brother Christians who are not free to worship God the way we are. Here in Tripp, you can come to church anytime you'd like. 
You can get your Bible whenever you want and read it. You can pray anytime and anywhere. But in some places of the world, if you go to church or even own a Bible, you can be arrested and put in jail. In some countries, you can be killed for being a Christian. So when our verses tell us about Timothy, we learn that we should pray for Christians around the world who are not free to worship God the way that we are. When we read about the Christians in Italy saying hi, we learn that there are Christians all over the world and that they are our brothers and sisters in our faith. Now, we might feel uh, alone sometimes because it's often hard to be a Christian. But our verses remind us that we are not alone. All over the world, even in faraway places like Italy, there are Christians who worship God, read His Word, and pray for us. So I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because we'll learn more about these things. I'm going to pray and then you can, you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Well, I want to do two things this morning. First, I want to look at what our text actually tells us. And then secondly, I want to discuss something relevant to our text. I want to discuss the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And since our text has a lot of what our opponents would label trivial information, I want to consider the inspiration of Scripture, particularly as it relates to what might appear on the surface to be mundane or unimportant details. So we'll comment briefly on the text, but we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning on the principles presupposed by the presence of such details in the Bible. Well, the key elements of our text are these. In verses 18 and 19, Paul asks for prayer. Here we find the importance of praying for those who minister the Word of God to us. And special emphasis is placed on those who suffer persecution for their faith. Verses 20 and 21 are a prayer. In this prayer, Paul appeals to the God of peace. That phrase, the God of peace, is a proclamation of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Paul uses this exact same expression six other places in his various epistles. The God of peace unites his people in mutual love by giving them unity of doctrine. The words brought up from the dead remind us of the connecting link between the two truths so prominently discussed in this epistle, namely the one perfect sacrifice and the continuing priestly intercession. The cross was the fulfilled altar of sacrifice and the heavenly sanctuary where Christ is ascended fulfills the earthly holy of holies. The title shepherd reminds us of God's tender love for his church. Throughout the scriptures, and especially in the Psalms, God refers to his people as the sheep of his pasture. Jesus takes to himself the title Good Shepherd because he laid down his life for his sheep. We also read here of the blood of the everlasting covenant. This tells us that there has only and always been one way of salvation. 
and that is by grace through faith. And this faith is placed in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on behalf of his people. Hebrews teaches us that this was the faith of Abel, Enoch, Noah, of the patriarchs. No one in the history of the world has ever been saved in any other way. Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, and his blood is the blood of the everlasting covenant. In the final few verses, we get another proof that Paul was the penman of this epistle. We argued that extensively, actually, in our first sermon on this series. Here in verse 23, we find a reference to Timothy. Timothy was associated with no one else but Paul ever. Verse 24 teaches us that the scriptures are not merely to be read and studied by ministers, because Paul writes, greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. It was expected that everyone would read this epistle. Throughout the Bible, we find all manner of persons addressed. Men as husbands and fathers, women as wives and mothers, children as young kids and as young men and young ladies. Masters, servants, civil magistrates, citizens, all the saints. And then the epistle closes with Paul's trademark salutation, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 17 and 18. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Fourteen New Testament epistles have that salutation. Thirteen of them specifically open with Paul announcing himself as the penman. Hebrews differs in this respect, but it closes in exactly the same way. No other New Testament epistle closes with this salutation. Now, having explained the text briefly, I want to transition to what will be the true meat of our sermon this morning. Opponents of the Christian faith latch on to passages such as our text as proof that the Bible is not inspired. Even in their nicest terms, they may say, does it really square with the dignity of inspiration to include some of the ordinary and mundane details that we find in Paul's epistles? For instance, he asks for his cloak in one epistle. He gives Timothy medical advice in another one. He often includes personal salutations to his friends. Why do we need to appeal to the lofty doctrine that all the words of Scripture are breathed out by God to account for such, quote, trivial things? Well, the best way to answer this is to take three examples of such so-called trivia, and that'll be our outline this morning. Number one, the cloak. Number two, the wine. And number three, the farewells. So firstly, the cloak. 2 Timothy 4.13 reads, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. The early church father, Jerome, who lived from 347 to 420 AD, complained that opponents of Christianity appealed to that passage to deny the Christian doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Why, they said, would the Holy Spirit need to breathe out such words? Why would God have to inform all Christendom that Paul left his cloak in Troas at Carpus house. Well, let me start by asking a question. What's the objection here? Is it the mention of a cloak? Uh, the Gospels mention Jesus' cloak. Do we have to tear those passages out of the Bible too? And what exactly does the Bible tell us about Jesus and his cloak? 
Well, it tells us how Jesus was stripped of his cloak and marched through the streets of Jerusalem for about seven hours. It tells us how his bare back was scourged and later beaten with rods. And in a final form of humiliation, he had a scarlet robe placed on him in mockery while soldiers cast lots for his cloak. Jesus wasn't a millionaire televangelist with a bunch of $3,500 Armani suits. He was an itinerant preacher with no place to lay his head. His cloak was his sole possession. So is the mention of a cloak really trivial? When Jesus was arrested, the Gospels record that all the disciples forsook him, even the ones who penned those words. And as he was being crucified, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, Paul writes 2 Timothy from prison. And just after mentioning his, or asking for his cloak, he writes that when he was arrested, everyone forsook him. And he prays that God may not hold this sin against them. So when Paul asked Timothy to bring his cloak, we see Paul being made conformable to the image of God's Son. The very same enemies of Christ were harassing Paul and chasing him all over the Roman Empire. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes that these same men who killed both Jesus and the prophets, quote, have persecuted us, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. When we read the book of Acts, we see this to be the case. Paul is harried from place to place, sometimes a step ahead of his Judaizing opponents, often not. Paul suffered persecution everywhere he went. Paul writes, he tells us, From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things. In Acts, we read how Paul is let down out of a window in a basket. We read how he is escorted out of Jerusalem to protect him from men who have sworn an oath to kill him. So is it any wonder that he might leave his cloak at someone's house? Paul isn't a scatterbrained kid that's always leaving his jacket at his friend's house. Paul is a wanted man living on the lamb, needing to escape at any hour of day or night. So we shouldn't be surprised that he would ask Timothy to bring him his cloak. And the Holy Spirit has seen fit to reveal this trivial detail because it isn't trivial. It shows us Paul, much like his master Jesus, deprived of all of his worldly goods for righteousness' sake. And note well the immediate context which ends with the request for Paul's cloak opens with these words. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Now God never breathed out anything without purpose. And this request serves a beautiful purpose. What comfort must these words provide to poor Christians who suffer the want of life's necessities? The mighty apostle Paul had no covering from the elements. What consolation must these words afford to fellow sufferers for Christ's name? 
One thinks of the countless martyrs who have suffered imprisonment and death for Jesus. Wouldn't your heart be warmed and your faith strengthened to read of the great apostle locked up in prison like you? Think of the great Bohemian reformer, Jerome of Prague, imprisoned in the tower dungeon at Constance for 340 days without coat or blanket or anything to alleviate his suffering. Wouldn't he draw great strength from knowing that his brother Paul endured such suffering from cold and nakedness? Wouldn't he feel the beauty of this request? Bring the cloak that I left it with Carpus at Troas when you come. These words present Paul to us in a way that is specifically intended to affect us. He's about to finish his earthly course by dying a martyr's death. Just around the corner lies the prospect of being beheaded by that monster of immorality, Emperor Nero. Here we find Paul in prison, naked and alone, and all he asks for is his cloak to provide him with the barest protection from the elements. How utterly dead do you have to be not to see the beauty of that request? How cold and unfeeling must be the heart that doesn't see the grandeur of those words? And how wretchedly evil must he be who declares they're merely human because he can't comprehend them? When Paul writes for Timothy to bring his cloak, we don't see Paul the fiery preacher staring down the Sanhedrin. We don't see Paul debating with the Stoics in Athens. We don't see a towering giant of a man. We see a weary, battle-worn man deprived of all of his earthly goods, even his cloak. We see a shivering old man rotting in a Roman prison with no covering for his body to shelter him from the elements. How exactly is that trivial? How is it below the dignity of the Holy Spirit to inspire those words? That's the objection of fools who wouldn't know inspiration if it damned them to eternal hellfire for crucifying the Son of God and trampling His blood underfoot. Secondly, the wine. In 1 Timothy 5.23 we read, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and frequent infirmities. Opponents of the inspiration of Scripture will assert that this is just some personal medical advice. Paul is writing, they say, from his own mind, his own will. And yet, just like the previous passage, Paul begins this section by saying, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit anticipated some smart-alecky skeptic complaining about this instruction as being below the dignity of the Holy Spirit. Again, let's ask, what exactly is so objectionable? Both water and wine have a long and storied past in the Bible. Both are used as metaphors for the satisfying blessings of God. Now, the more closely we examine the passage, the more profound it becomes. And remember what we just noted. This is spoken as if it were in the very temple of God. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then comes the charge. One, don't show partiality. Two, don't be hasty to ordain any man. Three, don't partake of other men's sins. Four, keep yourself pure. And five, don't drink just water. Drink a little wine too. These things are commanded as in the very presence of God. And if we start from a position of faith instead of arrogant unbelief, we find several important lessons here. First of all, we see that Timothy had a severe stomach ailment. Though Timothy was a great saint, an evangelist, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, 
a man eminent for his holy life, yet God saw fit that he be afflicted with bodily disease. Our catechism teaches us that God will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. Now that means that, A, nothing occurs in the life of anyone that doesn't ultimately come from the hand of God for God's sovereign purposes. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. B, God uses adversity, suffering, and disease for the benefit of his children. Our catechism also teaches us that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. When men claim that it is never God's will for his children to be sick or suffer, they're either fools or deceivers, neither of which is a good thing. Secondly, we learn that God wills for his children to take proper precautions for the sake of their health. And we saw that a minute ago with regard to Paul's cloak. What's a cloak for but a covering from the cold? Here we find Paul charging Timothy in the very presence of God to take care of his health as he was able. Now, he might still have suffered from his ailment, but at least it wouldn't have been from negligence. Thirdly, we find a warning against the asceticism that was just on the horizon of the church. A couple weeks ago, we, we mentioned the rise of monasticism when men began to leave the cities, flee into the wilderness to get away, so they thought, from the temptations of the world. Now, along with this grave error arose another error called asceticism. And asceticism is rigorous self-discipline, which in and of itself may not be bad, but asceticism has always been viewed as a form of merit-earning behavior. Whenever men engage in asceticism, invariably they believe that the harsher they treat their bodies, the more credit they earn with God. Soon after the death of the apostles, asceticism spread like a plague across Christendom. There were men who refused to sleep in beds and slept on the ground, lest they fall into the sins of luxury by pampering their bodies. There were men who lived in caves and survived on bread and water for decades. There were men who lived on small platforms on top of high poles. There were men who intentionally or wore intentionally uncomfortable hair shirts. And of course, there were men who believed that celibacy was meritorious. Just as a historical aside, Pope Sylvester decreed celibacy for priests in 600 AD. The decree was largely ignored until the last vestiges of married clergy were stamped out in England in the 1200s. But for centuries, wine was considered a basic necessity of life. And one of the reasons why is that fermentation killed bacteria that might be present in their water, especially stored water. So people were less likely to get dysentery or other stomach diseases if they drank wine or beer. So when a naive Christian fell for the lie of asceticism, giving up wine would almost be a natural choice. You would thereby be giving up a necessity of life. How many brownie points would that be worth with God, right? Well, it may be speculation to, to think that, that Timothy's stomach problems were the result of ascetic abstinence from wine, but at any rate, we do know from the mouth of the Holy Spirit that he drank only water, and this is precisely what Paul corrects in his young protege, and it serves as a lesson to later generations 
a lesson sadly ignored, that asceticism causes bodily harm and that this is not pleasing to God. Fourthly, we have a command from Scripture itself that combats the silly obsession that many American evangelicals have about strong drink. You can search the Bible from cover to cover, and you will not find a negative thing said about wine or strong drink. What Scripture rebukes is drunkenness, the excessive use of wine. Well, Scripture says the same thing about food. Gluttony is a sin. Scripture says the same thing about sleep. Sloth is a sin. It's not the thing itself, but the sinful excess that God forbids. Fifthly, we see the pastoral heart of a true minister. Here's the Apostle Paul, weighed down with the care of all the churches from Jerusalem to Illyrium and those from Illyrium even to Spain, as he says, and yet he does not overlook the personal life of someone in his charge. He sets aside the care of all the churches to correct an erring servant of God. And finally, we see that the miraculous sign gifts of the apostles were not a perpetual gift to the church for all ages. In Philippians 2, we read of Epaphroditus, that he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In 2 Timothy 4.20, we read that Paul left Trophimus in Miletus because he was sick. Now, if the miraculous sign gifts were to operate perpetually in the church throughout all time, why didn't Paul lay hands on Epaphroditus and heal him? Why didn't he merely heal Trophimus instead of leaving him in Miletus sick while he continued on his missionary journey? Why didn't Paul lay hands on Timothy and heal his dear son in the faith? Why did he resort to medical advice instead? Well, it's because the miraculous sign gifts, such as healing and raising the dead, were signs that accompanied the, the apostles' early ministry to demonstrate their link to the ministry of Jesus. These, these gifts prove that the apostles were commissioned by Jesus himself to write the books of the New Testament, just like miracles accompanied the ministry of the Old Testament penmen. And finally, we come to the farewells. Critics object to the salutations at the end of Paul's epistles by claiming that they're only quote the, the, the ordinary compliments that we all employ in writing a letter. That there's nothing here that's worthy of an apostle. It's objected that there's nothing inspired here, but rather the Holy Spirit has merely let Paul's pen run on so that he could give free expression to his personal affections in the same way that a secretary might be allowed to add her own greeting to a letter dictated to her. And our text is one such case. Who are these nameless Italians that send their greetings? In Romans 16, Paul goes on for 16 verses in what appears to be reminiscences of his friendship with people, 18 of whom he lists by name. Besides these, he often greets whole families, the household of Aquilus, of Narcissus, of Aristobulus. These verses, it is objected, don't require divine inspiration to account for them. And again, all we can do is shudder in horror at the man who takes up God's holy word with such defiled hands. There is a historical lesson that these salutations teach us. The gospel spread rapidly, and it didn't spread at the behest of the great men of the world. It spread in spite of opposition 
from the priests of the Jews, the local magistrates of cities throughout Europe and Western Asia, and the very emperor of Rome himself. God used weak earthen vessels, such as Aristarchus, Apelles, Rufus, Silas, and many others who would be unknown to us were it not for the Bible. God included their names in Scripture as proof that God has not called many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things which are wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those things that are mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And there's also something in the Old Testament that I believe, if properly considered, would serve as a corrective here as well. And I'm referring to those long and often tedious genealogies that we find in books like Numbers, First Chronicles, and Ezra. Among other things, these lists of names show us the important truth that God knows all men and he knows them all by name. He knows every single one of his people. He knows whom like Jacob he loves and whom like Esau he hates. Nobody goes under the radar. Nobody slides by unnoticed. Imagine that you were Phoebe, whom the Holy Spirit through Paul commends for generosity and service to fellow Christians. Imagine that you were Euodia and Syntyche, whom God through Paul commands to put aside their petty differences and patch up their relationship. Imagine that you were Clement, whose name God affirms through Paul to be recorded in the book of life. Well, you don't have to imagine. If you're serving Christ and his church by generosity and help to those in need, you are being addressed. If you're holding a grudge against your brother or sister in the Lord, you are being addressed. If you're serving the church as a minister of the word, you're being addressed. If you're imprisoned for the faith, if you're running the race looking unto Jesus, if you are living by faith, then you are being addressed. If you're obeying those who rule over you, knowing that they watch out for your souls as those who must give account, then you are being addressed. If you desire to have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably, then you are being addressed. What a sad, impoverishing thing it is to view the scriptures as our opponents do, as if there are parts of the Bible that are more inspired than others, or that there are some parts that are inspired while others are not. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let us pray.